The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. We started this series uh, five weeks ago. We are going to be in Daniel chapter 3 today. We're going to look at verses 1 through 18, the first half of that chapter. As we were talking about this, this book and why it is we as a church felt uh, called to teach through it, uh, we, we've been talking about what it means for us to be exiles in the world today, to be men and women who are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, but are called to live on planet Earth as sojourners here, or exiles. And that's one of the reasons why we, we have decided to teach this book, because the context of Daniel, of course, is that these are the exiles who are sent into Babylon to, to live in such a way that they would live for the welfare or for the good of the city that God had sent them. And so this, this image or this picture of living as an exile in a foreign land is very much the way you and I are called to live today as followers of Jesus. Even specifically in our text today where we see the hordes of people bowing down to an image or to an idol, we have the picture of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing and remain standing and refusing to bow down. It's like a word picture. It's like an image of what it is we're called to do as followers of Jesus. We are called to upright living in a fallen world. So we're going to take some time to journey through the first 18 verses today. Beginning in chapter 3, verse 1. I'm actually just going to read all 18 verses. I know it's a lot of text, but I'm going to read all 18 verses up front because it's a compelling story. And then we'll journey through this as a church together. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and breadth was 6 cubits and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Verse 2. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province to come, or the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar uh, had set up. Then the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the counselors and the treasurers and the justices, the magistrates and all the officials of the province gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, and all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that the King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews, O king, whom you have appointed over the affairs of the provinces of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they were brought They brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound, the horn, the pipe, the lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipes, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace... And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered, and they said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Would you pray with me? 
Oh, Father, as we come to what is very likely a well-known passage in Scripture, God, as we lay fresh eyes upon this passage today, God, would you give us insight and understanding? Would you move in and through these words as they are preached, God? Would you give us an understanding of what it looks like in our lives to stand for you when the world bows to other things? God, may our focus today not be on the morality of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but the faithfulness of the God whom they served. God, help us to ask in our own personal lives today what confident trust in you looks like, even in those times where you do not provide deliverance in the way we've asked or desired. And as we gather here this morning, God, my heart is so aware of all the things that are going on, both in the individual lives of the men and women in this sanctuary and with men and women across the face of the earth. God, no doubt many of us have been troubled this week as we've watched the news unfold about the war in Israel. And so, God, today we ask that you would please intervene. God, we ask that you would put the demonic ideologies of Hamas to an end forever and that you would bring peace to Israel and to the Middle East. God, we ask that you would protect the innocent, uh, that you would comfort those who are mourning, that you would heal the brokenhearted, God, that you would bring reconciliation to the divided. We ask that, Jesus, you would be made known in the midst of it all, whether in Israel or in Ukraine or wherever else on planet Earth today. God, would you open the eyes of the blind to say it today to understand and know that only in your son Jesus is sin and death defeated. Only in Jesus is grace extended and real forgiveness experienced. Only in Jesus can true and eternal reconciliation be found. Only in Jesus Christ will every tear one day be wiped away. Will death be no more? Will mourning, crying, and pain forever pass away? We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 18 is a hard verse. Look at it with me. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are standing there in the presence of the king, fiery furnace boiling behind them, knowing full well what befalls them if they don't do what the king has asked, and they say, our God will deliver us, our God is a delivering God, but even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. It's the but even part of the prayer. That is so scary, isn't it? I have one of the best jobs in the world. I'm so grateful to God for, forgive me. I'm so grateful to God for him allowing me to be a part of your lives. And there's some really beautiful days that I get to be a part of your lives, wonderful days. Baptism of your kids. I got to join two people in marriage yesterday, beautiful, amazing. Get to celebrate what God's doing in your careers and in your lives. I love, I love celebrating those days. There's other times in my job, however, when I'm invited into your life in the worst of moments. Lack of sleep, I'm sorry. And I uh, sit there with you as you're, uh, as you're asking God, like why God? I sat with some friends this week who were grappling with the devastating loss and, you know, they thanked me for being there and I was like, no, it's like I, I get my job. My job is not, I'm just a parable of Jesus. That's all I am. When you're grieving over the grave of a loved one or you're struggling with a betrayal or you've lost everything or you're under the cloud of depression or whatever those difficult days may be where your prayers have seemed to go unanswered or the but-evens have become true. I realize you don't need Paul there. You, you just want to know that God is with you. 
And as a pastor, my, my job is to simply be obedient to just being present so you're reminded that God is present. I'm a parable of Jesus. That's all that I am. As I am privileged with the opportunity to sit with you in the ashes of life, as you beg God to heal your marriage or you beg God to bring the dead back to life or for the pain to stop or for the cancer to leave or for answers to come or for depression to lift, I join you as you beg our God of mercy for his deliverance. It's the but even part that's really hard for me. I don't claim to have the wisdom of God, none of us do. We believe that God is sovereign and that no matter what the circumstances are, even if they go against our, our most desperate of pleas, we trust and believe that our God is good, that he is sovereign, that he is working out his good and perfect will even in the midst of our most searing moments of, of pain. He is a healing God. He is a merciful God. He is a delivering God. He is sovereign. He is loving. And his ways are above my ways. As we got to this text, I just found myself looking at verse 18 again and again and again and replaying in my mind years and years and years of sitting with people in those moments where things didn't unfold the way they'd asked God for them to unfold and trying to help them make sense of it. I can tell you that I am convinced, I'm utterly convinced in the goodness of God. The longer I live and the more I walk with men and women and the more I experience personally and the more I see experience through the eyes and lived experience of the people in my church, I know that God is good. I know that he is good. I know that God is sovereign over all things, that he never is sleeping at the wheel no matter what painful things befall us. I know that God is, is aware and present and understands what we're going through. I know that that is true. And I know that God is working out his good and perfect will for our good and for his glory. And so that brings us to this story in Daniel. This story as the fiery furnace boils in the background. If you've been here over the last several weeks, we've, we've been journeying up to this point in chapter 3. The book of Daniel is structured in a unique way. The first six chapters are narrative. They tell a story. And each chapter is kind of a standalone story. The first chapter dealt with the exile of the, of the Israelites to Babylon. The, the second chapter that we wrapped up last week dealt with this crazy dream King Nebuchadnezzar had that left his spirit troubled. And then the supernatural way that God intervened and through the prophet Daniel, God gave the king not only an understanding of the content of the dream, but also an interpretation of the meaning of the dream. It was incredible. And in the centerpiece of this dream that God had given King Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king, in the center of this dream was this stone that was cut from no human hand. You know the story. Nebuchadnezzar had this dream of a statue made of four metals, gold, silver, bronze, and iron, representing four successive kingdoms. It was God looking into the future through the prophet Isaiah, through the interpretation of a dream that God had given Nebuchadnezzar. And at the end of the dream, the stone cut from no human hands came hurling in. It obliterates the statue. It becomes chaff in the wind and blows away. But this stone that comes in from nowhere becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. Jesus Christ and his kingdom is the stone and the mountain that fills the whole earth. It's cool to see Jesus in, in Daniel chapter 2, some 600 years before he was born. And we, we talked last week as we finished the service, it's like, it is not a resignation or a, or a comment on being defeated when we say Jesus is on the throne. And we, we commented last week how sometimes when we say that, it's sort of like a, oh well, I guess this is our consolation prize as the world spirals out of control or as politics aren't going the way I hope they would go, we say, well, I guess Jesus is on the throne. But last week we remembered, no, that is, that is a victory shout. Jesus is the stone. He is the stone cut from no human hand who fills the whole world. Every other kingdom, every other kingdom is in submission, bows, is obliterated to him. Jesus, he put himself as the stone. If you go to Luke chapter 20, you don't have to turn there, but Jesus was talking to those who opposed him as he was in Jerusalem on the final week of his life. And he said directly to these men who were opposing him, he said, what then is this that is written? And he quotes Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He's speaking about himself. He says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. Jesus is this stone that we see featured in Daniel chapter 2. 
He's the cornerstone upon which we are to build our very lives. In our youth group this week, we looked at, at Matthew 7, the end of the Lord's, of the, of the Sermon on the Mount, when, when, when Jesus says to his listeners, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain falls, the floods come, the winds blow and beat down the house, but it does not fall because it has been founded on the rock. We build our house on Christ the rock. He is the stone and his kingdom is the one that fills the whole earth. And as we finished up the chapter last week, there's this incredible response from this king. Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man, literally the most powerful man on the earth at that time, he's standing before a 17-year-old Hebrew exile who interpreted the dream because of the supernatural intervention of God. And at the end of chapter 2, the king, he falls on his face. He pays homage to Daniel. He commands that an offering and incense be offered to Daniel. And, and, and the king, Nebuchadnezzar, before this boy, is speaking to Daniel. And he says, truly, Daniel, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. He is the revealer of mysteries. You have been able to reveal, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. So that's how the story ended. It'd be nice if that's where Daniel ended, but when you open up the book to chapter three, what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar's heart? From, from bowing before, before Daniel and, and, and extolling his God, the next chapter we open it up and, and he's commanding everyone to bow down to an image he made. An image that represents his kingdom and his rule. Now, most scholars believe that somewhere between 9 and 11 years or so had passed between chapter 2 and chapter 3. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are no longer boys. And something has happened in the heart of King Nebuchadnezzar. If, even if you go back to the end of chapter 2, there's something in the words of, of Nebuchadnezzar that help you understand why this may have happened. He simply says to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. It was never Nebuchadnezzar's God. And so here's... Our chapter opens up, we see something entirely different unfolding. So here's three things I want you to write down today. Here's the first thing. In standing for God in a fallen world, which is the title of my sermon, in standing for God in a fallen world, the faithful will face the command to worship the worldly. In standing for God in a fallen world, the faithful will face the command to worship the worldly. Notice verse 4 and verse 5. The herald who is speaking on behalf of Nebuchadnezzar, he says in the middle of verse 4, you are commanded, O peoples and nations and languages, dot, 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 to fall down and worship the golden image, it says in verse 5. So this is a command by the worldly authorities, a command to fall down and worship a false god. This is a command to worship the worldly. And in this case, worldliness in the world in Daniel chapter 3, takes the form of an actual idol, a gold idol. What an odd-shaped idol, 90 or 60 cubits tall, 6 cubits wide, that's 90 feet. It's, it's 9 stories tall and only 9 feet wide. It's this needle-shaped structure in the middle of the, the plain in, the, in Babylon, and it's in plated in gold, bizarre structures stretching into the desert sky, and it's impressive. And it's meant to impress. That's why Nebuchadnezzar constructed it. I read one theologian this week who said respectful terror seems to have been what Nebuchadnezzar was aiming for. This was a, 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 an idol that was meant to, to draw out of those who saw it a sense of respectful terror. Though I've never been to Washington, D.C., I've read stories about the planning of the city and the architecture behind the monuments and the buildings. They were meant to instill a sense of power and might and respectful terror in anybody who visits Washington, D.C. There's real intention behind the architecture there. So that when dignitaries and foreign leaders come to our national capital, they see power and might, and it instills fear in them. And so this image was set up by Nebi, and it was meant to instill the sense of awe in all who saw it. It was a fixed structure. It was built to draw about worship and celebration. And once the construction was complete, there's this image here in our, in our chapter of this orchestra that's going to play all this music, and, and it is demanded that those in attendance worship this, this structure which represents the rule and reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. 
And there's this band with all these unique sounding instruments it's supposed to play. I'm not a musician, but I don't know a lot of the names of those bands. I was reading one theologian this week. He, he said that in many cultures, music draws attention to state and religious processions and ceremonials. Here in Daniel chapter 3, he says the band probably comprises two wind and three string instruments. None of these instruments were used in Israelite worship. Most are foreign terms for instruments used in secular contexts. And so here's the conclusion. All of it, this whole thing, this whole charade, this whole charade around the, around the structure, the call to worship with music, it implies a double judgment on the alien pagan nature of the ceremony that Nebuchadnezzar is inaugurating, this theologian says. And so the, the music is to lift and people are to drop. Man, can you see it? I mean, we read this story and it's easy to kind of just gloss over, but can you just sort of like imaginatively insert yourself into this scenario? Can you just kind of look around and see it? I mean, these aren't serfs. They're not commoners. These aren't the peons of society who are gathered around this image that's been set up in the desert. Nebuchadnezzar has strategically gathered the most influential people of his kingdom. These are his governing officials, and he is now commanding them to bow in worship. And I suppose as the head goes, so goes the body. Can, can, you, can you see this, this nine-story needle-like structure rising up from the plain of Damar, reaching high into the sky, gleaming and golden in the desert sun, visible for miles around, stretching into the crystal-clear desert sky? Thousands of people gathered around this structure in all their regalia as dignitaries from the nearby regions. This is a gathering of the who's who of Babylon, the ruling class, the elite from far and wide. Anyone who was anyone was present. High officers and officials and governors and advisors and treasurers and judges and magistrates and powerful officials. But not all eyes are on the golden image set up by the king or on the king himself, no. Also in view on that day, on the plain of Dura, is the smoldering furnace that's not far off. Remember the command was if people don't bow down, immediately they'll be thrown in the fiery furnace. This furnace was in close proximity, and everybody sees that too. They see the golden image, the king, the crowds, the musicians in the smoldering furnace. Can you imagine the, the buzz in the air that day? There's an anticipation as the guests wait for the ceremony to begin. And as Nebuchadnezzar is glancing over the amassed masses, he, he's thinking to himself, this is my moment. I've been planning this for years. This is the culmination of my work. He was poised to experience what he thought would be the glory that he deserves. And as a hushed silence falls over those in assembly that day, up steps the herald the one who speaks on behalf of the king. And he shouts out the message of the king. And he says, people of all races and nations and languages, listen up. Listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes, the other musical instruments, when you hear that music rise up, bow to the ground and worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. And they recognize the herald speaks on behalf of the king and there's so much power behind those words. And then he adds this. He said, anyone who refuses to obey will be immediately thrown into the blazing furnace. You know, repetition in scripture, especially narrative, it, and also discourse, it, it helps us as Bible readers to understand what is the author trying to emphasize, emphasize here. You know, the word worship appears 11 times in our 18 verses. In this chapter, we are reading about worship. We're meant to notice the repetition. It's a story about worship, worship of a false god, worship of the worldly. And then it's Nebuchadnezzar who set the whole thing up. And we're, we're, we're meant to ask and wonder, I think, a little bit as we read this. Like, And there's no definitive answer to this question, but why? Like, what motivated him? Like, why did he build this? Like, what, what changed between him at the end of chapter 2 and here at the beginning of chapter 3? And no one really knows. Some people think, man, he, he was given this image or this vision by God where he was represented by the golden head of this statue, the, the most powerful, the best of all the kingdoms. And maybe for him, this is a, a way to seize on that and try to kind of dictate the way God is going to move. So he makes a whole entire idol out of gold to represent his rule and reign. That could be it. Other people believe that maybe as we look at verse 12 and we see all these Chaldeans, these, these conniving little advisors to the king as they're speaking in the king's ear and they say, 
those men, those Hebrew exiles, king, pay attention to them because they don't pay attention to you. They don't serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. And some people have speculated that this was a long conspiracy by the advisors of King Nebuchadnezzar to set up a situation where those men who kept getting promoted over them would finally be done with. Who knows? Ultimately, all we know is that this was the doing of King Nebuchadnezzar. He's the one that set the whole thing up. Back to the idea of repetition. Did you know that nine times in our text we see the phrase have or had set up? Nine times. He was the big man on campus and he was doing something in the plane. And we are meant to see that repetition. He was the one who was setting it up. He was in the place of playing God. It's interesting if we go back and we look at what happened in the previous chapter, we see the phrase set up twice in chapter two. I'm not sure if you remember that. You remember Nebuchadnezzar had this dream. He didn't know what it was. His spirit was troubled. He said, if no one can interpret this dream, I'm killing all my wise men of Babylon. So Daniel and his friends, they hear that. They say, hey, let's, let's beg the God of mercy to give us supernatural understanding of the king's dream so we don't die and all the wise men of Babylon don't die. So Daniel and his friends, they, they, they beg God, the God of mercy, to give understanding. And when God does, in chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, we have the, the prayer of praise that, that Daniel gives to God once there is revelation of the dream. And in chapter 2, verse 21, as Daniel is speaking back to God the things that make him so praiseworthy, he says of God, he changes times and seasons, God does, and he removes kings and sets up kings. It is the work of God to set up kingdoms, to set up kings, not the work of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is trying to play God. In fact, if you go a little bit further in chapter 2, as Daniel is giving the interpretation of the dream back to King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 44, he says, in those days when this stone cut from no human hand comes in and obliterates all the other kingdoms of the world, he says, in those days, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. This is the work of God. And Nebuchadnezzar here has a God complex. The Apostle Paul agrees. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, that all authority comes from God and all those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. It is God who sets up kingdoms and ultimately we're told in chapter 2 that he will one day set up his eternal kingdom and it will never be destroyed or conquered. He will consummate. He's already set it up. But he will consummate his eternal kingdom. It will never be destroyed or conquered and he will replace every other kingdom and his will stand forever and ever. And also, as we look at chapter 3 here, this, this construction of a tower on this plane, it's very reminiscent of what we read in Genesis chapter 11. And I think we're meant to see that parallel. At the very beginning of the book of Daniel, chapter 1, verse 2, we're told that Babylon was on the plain of Shinar. And when we go back to, Daniel, or to Genesis chapter 11, where the Tower of Babel was constructed, it was constructed on Shinar, same spot. So centuries earlier, in the exact same spot that Nebi constructs his needle-like tower, centuries earlier, the people of the world gathered around to build a tower and they said, come on, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Nebuchadnezzar's doing the same thing. He's building a tower in the same place, seeking to make a name for himself. It seems for me to be in the heart of man to want to make a name for himself or herself, doesn't it? I know it lives within me constantly fighting that temptation to want to be made much of by the people around me, constantly fighting that temptation to want to be revered and lifted up by those around me. And this, this setting up of idols is something that we do really well as human beings. Everywhere we look, we see human desire to set up for themselves gods, idols to be worshipped in the place of the one true God. But here we are on the plane of Dumar, Dura rather, looking at this structure. David Helm, one of, the, one of my, uh, the authors I've been leaning on in this sermon series, here's what he had to say about that. He said, the making of architecture is one thing, but when it is motivated by idolatry, it becomes something else altogether. And this seems to be the heart problem of the human condition. Down through the ages from building the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 to the image constructed on the plains outside of Dura, humankind has attempted to rise to the level of a god. 
And it goes all the way back to the Genesis story. The garden story as Adam and Eve are manipulated by the serpent. He tells them, no, if you eat of this fruit, you will become like a God and your eyes will be opened. We see it as the builders of the Tower of Babel want to make a name for themselves. We see it as Nebi tries to make a name for himself and make people worship him. And we see it today manifesting in a thousand different ways, whether that be false religions, celebrity worship, humanism, political obsession, godless ideologies. We see it happening every day. You see, standing for God in a fallen world demands that the godly stand up against the command to worship the worldly. Secondly, we see the standing up for, for God, in standing up for God in a fallen world, the faithful will face the, the commitment to destroy the godly. There is a commitment in this world to destroy the godly. And when you stand up and say, I am standing for truth, I am standing for Jesus, you will begin to face the wrath of this global movement that seeks to destroy all things that are godly. And so the second thing, and we see it in our text as well, we see in standing up for God in a fallen world, the faithful will face a fierce commitment by the godless to destroy the godly. Look at verse 15. The second half of verse 15 is, is Nebuchadnezzar just out of his mind. He's just out of his mind and he's yelling at these guys. He says, if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a, a, a fiery furnace. And then he sort of mocks God. He says, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? So ironic coming from Nebuchadnezzar. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were godly men. We see that all the way back in chapter 1 when they refused to eat the king's food. And at the end of the chapter, the king looks at them as they stand before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquires of them, he finds them to be ten times better than all the other magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. By the end of chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar promotes them to this position of authority. They are placed over the affairs of the providence of Babylon. Babylon. Here in chapter 3, though, for whatever reason, Daniel was by their side in the first two chapters. Here in chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're all by themselves. Not sure where Daniel is. It could be that when he was appointed to, the, to rule over the whole province of Babylon as chief prefect. We read that in chapter 2. Maybe that's why Daniel's not with these guys, but for whatever reason, he's not there. But we, we, we got to go back and imaginatively put ourselves in that place again, on the plain of Dura. As the message has gone out, from the herald as the music raises up and fills the, the sky and the ears with noise and the thousands of attendees go down on their face, all the peoples and nations and languages falling on their face to worship the image. We're to see that in our mind's eye. Can you see the thousands of people just bowed down, face down in the dirt in submission to the command of the king? Thousands of conforming individuals worshiping an idol with this music filling the sky. I'm, I'm mindful of the, the lyrics of that old Simon and Garfunkel song, The Sound of Silence. Do you remember that? Where they say, all the people bowed and prayed to the neon god they made. That's what we see happening on the plain on this day. And as Nebuchadnezzar on his throne is looking out among the masses gathered around the image that he set up in the, uh, in the desert, as he sees all of his subjects bowed in homage to the image he set up, among all the hordes, in stark contrast to the mass conformity happening all around, stand three stoic figures. These three Hebrew exiles standing in quiet protest to the king's edict, choosing to remain upright, amongst the fallen masses. It soon becomes clear to Nebuchadnezzar that these are Daniel's friends and his special day was being hijacked by this silent protest and so he descends into a furious rage. How dare they upend his special day where he's gathered everybody use everybody. They're gonna upstage him in this moment? So he makes another commandment. He commands that these three Hebrew protesters be brought to him. And inside of all, as all these eyes are watching, it's like a soap opera unfolding. It's a drama unfolding in the presence of all of them. Nebuchadnezzar gets these men in front of him and he says, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you have not served my gods or worshipped the golden image that I have set up? Verse 14. 
And then he kind of gives them a second chance. I'm imagining that Nebuchadnezzar is thinking, man, they don't know who they're dealing with. When they look at me in the face, they see the rage in my eyes. They recognize I got a fiery furnace poised to enact my judgment upon them. When they know what's going to happen if they don't bow down, they're going to bow down. And so he gives them this one last chance. He says, I'll give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I've made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse to do what I'm telling you to do, you're going to be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my power, he says. And not only does he threaten them with death, he mocks their God. And I imagine the onlookers taking all of this in with salacious excitement. Surely they'll comply with the king now. Who's going to stand up against the most powerful man in the world as a furnace boils in the background? What's going to happen? But these are men of deep conviction and of deep faith. And no doubt, close in their hearts are the words of Moses in Exodus 20. As the law of God was given to Moses on Mount Sinai, that first and second commandment, you must not have any other gods but me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. No doubt those true words were resonating in the hearts and minds of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And as the entire known world is against them, as they feel these leering eyes of thousands upon them, can you imagine the fear? Can you imagine the loneliness they felt? Can you imagine the pressure that they were under, their knees knocking together as they stood there in humble defiance? Everybody looking at these Hebrew exiles. Man, it would have been so easy for them to to make an excuse. It would have been so easy for them to come up with a reason why they could or should bow down, but they didn't. And as we read this as readers, it's really easy for us. And I'm tempted to do this as a Bible reader. I'm tempted to make this passage about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego primarily. I'm tempted to uphold their morality, to uphold their resolve, to uphold their courage as if that's like the main point of the text. Make it about their resolve, their inner strength. And yes, what they are modeling is incredibly commendable right here. It's it's incredibly commendable. But the story in Daniel chapter 3 is not primarily about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I was reading on, my my son went to Bible college a few years ago, and on their Facebook page, they quoted one of their professors, and I copied this quote. It applies. He says, don't be overly impressed with the people of Scripture, but with the God of Scripture. We cannot forget that this is a story about God and his faithfulness, because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego certainly didn't forget that. When they're standing in the presence of the king in verses 17 and 18, they're not pointing to their own courage, their own strength. They're talking about who God is and what God can do. To them, this is a story about God, not about them. And so we're watching as readers and we're wondering, what's God going to do? What's he going to do? And so we see that in standing for a fallen Standing for God in a fallen world, the, the faithful men and women who seek to stand for God very likely will face command to worship the worldly, a commitment to destroy the godly. And finally, we see in standing for God in a fallen world, the faithful must have the courage to trust in God's sovereign will. In standing for God in a fallen world, the faithful or the godly must have the courage to trust in God's sovereign will. Again, we're not to be overly impressed with the people of Scripture, but with the God of Scripture. He is sovereign, which means he is absolutely in control. He never sleeps. He's fully aware of all things at all times. Nothing ever escapes his ever-watchful eye. He is sovereign. And no doubt as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand there on the human level, as they're watching the black smoke rise from that fiery furnace, they had to be terrified. I'd be. But look at their response in verses 16, 17, and 18. They answer the king. They say, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. It's courageous. Courageous. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us Out of your hand, O king, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Their trust is in God, and they trust in God's sovereign will. 
They have faith in a God who is bigger than that moment, though it's hard when you're facing imminent death to to think outside of that moment. I can't imagine being able to think outside of that moment in that moment, but they have the capacity in that place to recognize God is bigger even than that moment and even in that fiery furnace. Even as they're commanded to fall down and they're threatened with imminent death, they do not go down. They do not fall on their faces. And notice this. They don't expect God to reward them for their faithfulness. But if not, they say, but even if God does not spare us our lives, we're not turning away from him. God is worthy of our full trust. And regardless of circumstances, we're reminded in this story that choosing him is really the only option. I think of how encouraging this word would have been to the, those original hearers of the book of Daniel, those post-exilic Jews who had gone back to the Holy Land, who were living under the occupation of the, the, the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans for centuries, as they're living under crushing oppression with threats of death. I can imagine reading these words were so faith-inducing for them, so encouraging, and they're encouraging for us today. Again, these these guys could have spiritualized an excuse to not bow down. They could have said, you know, God sent us here as exiles, and we've been sent here for the good of the city, and if we die, what good are we to the city? So let's go ahead and bow down, preserve our lives, and stick around for a few more years to, to serve the city like God called us to do. They could have done that. They could have spiritualized compliance. They could have said, you know, I'm going to bow down, uh, but inwardly I'm, I'm going I'm to remain defiant. They could have said that. They could have said, our God is a gracious God and I know he'll forgive me. But there was something in their understanding of who God was and who God is that forbid them to bow down and take a knee. They anchored their response in the character of God. I love when they talk to Nebuchadnezzar, they don't use his title. Did you notice that in verse 16? They don't say, oh, King Nebuchadnezzar. They're like, oh, Nebi." We have no need to answer you in this matter. One guy writes, it's as though they were saying, Nebuchadnezzar, you you may think you're exalted and you may think you have power over life and death, but you're still just a man. And as they stand in his presence, they don't beg for their lives. They instead appeal to the true king, the one who does have power over life and death, who can deliver them from the threats of the king. These men trust in the sovereign will of God. They trust that he is good, that he causes all things to work together for their good and his glory, that even what Satan means for evil, God will use for good. They recognize that the perfect will of God is greater than the current circumstances they find themselves in. There's a grander story being told than just the story of their life. They don't expect God's reward in their moment of faithfulness or fidelity. I mean... I read this week, I'm paraphrasing someone, but they recognize that obedience is not a vending machine. Where if you exercise enough faithful obedience, you will always get what you want. I think sometimes in a simplistic way of understanding God, this is where a lot of faith is derailed. A lot of faith gets derailed because there's oftentimes in our life when we find ourselves in the but even moments, That when what we are praying for, asking for, or desiring, or seeking after, when it doesn't unfold the way we were hoping it would unfold, it can be a faith-derailing moment. I think, I, I, I can speak for myself, at least. I can speak for myself, very honestly. In, 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 falling on my knees and praying on behalf of my children or on behalf of those I love and then having the very thing I ask God to do have that not happen and the very worst thing that I beg not to happen, happen. I've been in that situation as a father, as a, as a, as a man. It's devastating. And, and, and when I go back and I try to reverse engineer what was so earth-shattering about what happened, it's because I believed on some level that my faith was just simply a transactional faith. That if I did A, B, and C, God had to do D, E, and F. But it's not that simple. Anyone who's walked with God for any length of time, sit down with any senior saint who's gone through horrible losses in their life, and they will tell you that God is not that simple. He's He's actually up to something way more profound than that in your life. Talk to anybody who's gone through, through, through horrible losses and have remained faithful to God or have struggled with God but found him through the journey at some point, who've walked through the valley of the shadow of death. Just sit at the feet of a saint that's, that's, that's lost a spouse. 
or lost a child or lost a business or battled through depression and has emerged on the other side clinging to Christ all the more. Talk to anybody who's been through a season like that and they'll tell you that that simplistic transactional understanding of God was a caricature. But they'll tell you that the, the experience of journeying through the valley of the shadow of death and, and, and learning to depend on God in a very real way through each painful moment, recognizing his nearness in a way that this transactional thing just didn't address, but a very real and honest experience with God through the fiery furnaces of life, that very thing is what led to a real and robust and honest relationship with the real God of the universe. Anybody who's been through anything like that will tell you that. That's why... That's why being in a, a multi-generational church is so important. Because sometimes life just has not yet afforded many of us those experiences. That's why we can learn much by sitting at the feet of those men and women who've experienced great losses in their lives. These men trust in the sovereign will of God. I've discovered over the course of my life, and I still got hopefully a few years left, that God's sovereign will has much bigger goals in mind, with apologies, than our comfort and our happiness. God, I've discovered over the course of my life, maybe you have too, that God is not nearly as concerned with our comfort as he is with our conformity to his will and to his image. That our lives may bring him glory and honor as he shapes us and molds us into the image of his son. I've discovered in, in my life, maybe you have too, that God is not as concerned with our momentary happiness as he is with our eternal holiness. And it's often very much in those seasons of greatest struggle that God is most at work in consecrating us for holiness. I'm reminded that fire has two purposes in Scripture. It's used for judgment and it's used for refinement. There's an old saying that says, the same sun that hardens clay softens wax. I was reading a blog this week that Scotty Smith wrote on the Gospel Coalition and as he was reflecting on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, here's what he writes. He says, these three friends don't worship God because of the gifts he gave them, but because of the God he was to them. They were convinced that he could rescue them from the fiery furnace, but even if he didn't, it wouldn't impact their worship of God one bit. And then he says this, listen to these words. They'd rather be delivered into his presence through the fire than worship a false God just to escape the fire. They would rather be delivered into his presence through the fire than to worship a false God just to escape the fire. And with, as I've said to you many times before, with humility and sensitivity to the, 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 the difficult things in life that we go through, I don't want to minimize or, or simplify what it is you may be experiencing today. I recognize there's many in this room today who may be facing the most difficult season of your entire life. And I'm not trying to be cute or simple in that, but I just, I wonder what is, what is stealing your comfort I wonder what is undermining your happiness. I wonder what things are ailing you today that might be tempting you to believe that God is not for you and cause you to turn away from him and to bow to another. I pray in the name of Jesus that through the power of the Holy Spirit you would trust that our God is good and that he is for you and that he never abandons you nor forsakes you my daughter was talking about giving birth this week and she said something profound. She went through birth, a natural childbirth. She had no, no medicine or epidural or anything. And she said, you know, when I was going through childbirth, one of her friends said, did it hurt? She's like, what? Yes, it hurt. But she told her friend, she's like, you know, here's the deal. When you're going through something painful, you can't try to distract yourself from the pain. You need to lean into it. You need to lean into it and be honest with yourself about the pain so that you can journey through the pain. I thought that was profound for my daughter. Standing for God in a fallen world means that you and I will have to be faithful even when the, the command to worship the worldly is dominant. We'll have to be faithful when there are those who are committed to destroying us in our lives and we have to 
anchor our courage in the character of God and trust in his sovereign will. And listen, I, t- I said uh, from the very beginning, we cannot, we cannot uh, moralize this text. We cannot make it about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because listen, though we can celebrate their faithfulness, and it's, 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 it's praiseworthy for sure, they were still men who were fallen. All of us have gone astray. The wages of sin is death. All of us are sinful. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, they all fell short of God's glorious standard of perfection. They were sinful men. Like you and me, they also needed not just a deliverer from physical fire, they needed a deliverer from their sin. And I'm reminded there's only been one who's been perfect. And I think about the ultimate fiery furnace being the cross of Christ. And I think of Jesus walking out of that tomb, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego next week, we're going to see walk out of that fiery furnace. It was God who did not spare his own son. It was Jesus who was perfectly obedient, perfectly faithful, who absorbed the wrath of God in the ultimate fiery furnace situation. And you remember what he prayed beforehand? He said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And so as we think about it, This God in whom we trust in the midst of our most difficult circumstances, we look to his son, we look to what he's done for us through his son, the the wrath that he's absorbed for us, the punishment he's absorbed for us, the payment he has paid for us, that we can trust him and lean into him in our most difficult and painful moments. David Helm, he finishes with this quote. I think I have it on the screen also. He says, Jesus gave his life Every waking moment to worshiping God and serving him alone. And that took him to the place of death that he did not skirt, shirk. To our place of death. Where our death died because he took it for us. That is the faithfulness of Jesus. That is what he gives us as his people. So that when we fail to be faithful, we can claim forgiveness on the ground of his faithful life and sin-bearing death. That is the gospel. And as all these people in this scene in, in chapter 3 of Daniel are gathered around this bizarre needle-shaped, gold-plated, 90-foot-tall idol in the plain of Dura, we read that, that all these people from all these nations and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image. And it hearkens to me the true picture of worship that the Apostle John gives us in the book of Revelation. Chapter 7, the ultimate worship, when all nations and peoples and languages gather around the throne of Christ and worship him, Revelation 3, or Revelation 7, John is looking at the throne of heaven and he says, as I look, behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for this text today. God, I'm thankful that even in a very selfish way, in my study of it, you have reminded me of your goodness. That you are trustworthy. And that God, it's, it's, it's appropriate and, and biblical and honoring to you for us to ask for your deliverance in whichever circumstances we face. And at the same time, God, we also appeal to your sovereign will recognizing there may be seasons and maybe times in our life that as we're praying for you to bring deliverance that we also have to say, but even if you choose not to deliver me, God, I trust you. Even if you choose not to answer this prayer in the way I am asking it, God, I trust you because I know you are good and I know you are for me and I know you are conforming me into your image and I know you are making me holy and I trust you no matter what circumstances unfold today be glorified in my life and through my life in sunshine or shadow. God, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.